land tax, stamp duty, tenants. Sure, property is great, but there are easier ways to get your passive income, sometimes with franking credits. Through ETFs or exchange-traded funds, you can buy a basket of shares in many different companies in one trade. BetaShares offers Australia's broadest range of ETFs, including income-focused funds, which aim to provide yield-hungry investors with attractive income streams. Discover the BetaShares range of ETFs and how simple they can be to invest in by going to betashares.com.au. Read the relevant PDFs and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a podcast by The Rask Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of The Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. G'day, welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. This is our weekly two cents segment. I'm Pete Wargent. I'm here with Chris Bates. G'day, Chris. How's things? Pete, life's good, mate. Happy Sunday to all our listeners as well. How's what's been happening in your world? Um, but just been a bit busy um, with buying property, funnily enough, for uh, the past week or so. So, um, yeah, there's a bit happening again. Uh, we went through a bit of a quiet patch where a lot of people were grappling with what's happening with mortgage rates and some people actually looking at selling because uh, cash flows have been quite severely impacted in some cases. But there's a few people actively buying uh, commercial and residential. So that's been keeping me busy. How about yourself? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty similar here. We've seen at May, June time um, was a little bit scary, I guess, because people were a little bit unsure about where rates were going to go. A lot of investors were freaking out a bit. The, that that storm's calmed a little bit. Um, you know, RBA paused in the last couple of months, and we've seen absolutely some huge inquiry. Last week's a little bit quieter than the, the previous weeks, but that's just what happens. Um, but we definitely saw some, you know, lots of purchases happening over the last couple of months. So the buyers are there, but, you know, it's an age-old problem. I think there's this belief that we're, you know, third week into August right now, and there's this belief that lots of great properties are going to come on in the next two or three months. Um so what the agents always like to talk up at this time of year. I just highly doubt it. I think there's going to be a real um, challenge finding good properties the next few months because, if anything, I think that May-June time is usually when, if you think about it from an agent point of view, is usually when an agent's hunting pretty hard for spring listings because it takes a few months to, you know, get tenants out or to paint the property and style it and, you know, it doesn't list straight away. And so... That was a scary time for buyers and sellers. So I reckon sellers at that point said, oh, no, we're not selling in spring. 
because I'm worried about where interest rates are going. I don't want to upgrade. Um, and then that didn't happen. You know, rates didn't go through the roof, you know, anymore. And then so I don't think they, yeah, I, I don't reckon we're going to see this, lots of listings coming on. I mean, what are you seeing, Pete? Is it still pretty dry up in Brisbane? It is. I think for anything half decent anyway. It's funny because we get these off-market opportunities yeah. sent to us and, but the number of times our agent will turn up and then there's two or three other buyer's agents there, it's very frustrating because we're, we're all facing the same problems, right? There's just not that much quality stock coming on. And um, I did see just in the past week or so, the unemployment rate in Australia just finally starting to tick up. Mm. I think it's, you know, was 34 3.5, well, well, now it's 3.7, which is still very low, but it's the highest in 14 months. And I think if you look at some of the other measures, you know, people are underemployed or underutilized. It's just starting to soften now. So I think that's the thing. We've been looking at the major banks, um, you know, Westpac, CBA, or reporting their mortgage arrears, and they, they haven't really moved a lot. Um, but if people start losing jobs, then well, that, that could change the, the equation a bit. So at the moment, it's you know still very low unemployment. But uh, mm. yes, yeah, so far anyway, yes, there's been a bit, bit of sort of... Uh, listing activity but it's still august so you know we'll see what happens when spring comes around i think with the buyers are always in the market if they're confident around their position financially right you don't go and try to buy a home or an investment um if you're worried about losing your job and so absolutely you know yes if unemployment starts to you know increase that'll be less buyers but it's glass half full glass half empty i mean there's 96 percent of the population that employed i guess and so um they're most likely going to be the buyers in the market and unemployment may lead to more sellers down the line if you know you can't get another job and they're running out of buffers and banks but i think that that's a real slow process because people don't just rush and sell their properties the banks will play ball with you especially in that situation um give you payment holidays and things like that so yeah i, I do think even if there is a higher unemployment rate in the next, that doesn't necessarily mean that the housing market's going to soften. Um, and uh, we're interesting to see how I play this out. There's three good stories this week, Pete. Um, maybe give us an overview of what we're covering this week. Will do. Yeah, I've been chatting to a few people actually down in Adelaide and they said the Rusk Roadshow down there was fantastic. So if you haven't got your tickets, um, there's still a few shows to go. Yeah, well, there's quite a few shows to get. Uh, tickets for still so uh, do come along i'll see you around the traps at some of those so uh, we're on a mission to become australia's most trusted property podcast at every sunday at 7 a.m uh, this is the two cents segment which will be waiting for you on the weekend so the big three news stories of the week that we like to cover each week so this week um we've interesting piece on i think it was on linkedin actually from scott keck um talking about why don't we make better use of Australia's spare bedroom, something that comes up in the census every time is we've got not only some empty dwellings, but we've got a heck of a lot of empty bedrooms. Um, but because of the tax system, that often get utilised. So he made some interesting suggestions or recommendations, which we'll run through. Uh, secondly, on global markets, the big story over the past week, Evergrande having reported uh, losses of over $80 billion over two years has finally collapsed and filed for bankruptcy in new york so that's china's second largest uh, real estate developer so we're going to take a bit of a uh, sort of a thought process there in terms of is there any potential contagion risk what might it mean for australia and thirdly uh, just a bit of a, a market update i guess brisbane is now the house price leader so quite a change uh, from some of the doom and gloom predictions from 
some time ago. Brisbane has actually seen price growth of over 4% over the past quarter, uh, actually ahead of Sydney now. So uh, we'll take a bit of a look at what's happening around the tracks there as well. So, Chris, let's start off with this um, Scott Keck article on utilising spare bedrooms. So every time in the census we have this uh, sort of... Um, these reports come out and there's, you know, there's a million empty homes, which I think is a bit of a furphy because the empty homes, it's often people like me, I'm overseas or on a campsite or you know, it's not always um, necessarily completely empty housing stock. And quite often there's new builds or people haven't moved in and whatever else. But there's certainly always a huge number of unused bedrooms. I think 13 million unused bedrooms in the last census. Um, so some interesting suggestions there on what we might be able to do to solve the rental crisis. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really good way of um, f affecting things immediately, right? Like the government's 1.2 million homes they're looking to build um, over the next five years. Like, yeah, that's going to potentially, you know, that, that desire to set a target. And yes, if we build more than we were planning to, that's going to be good. But it's going to take years to get developers and creating more supply. But this is something you could untap straight away. You know, a policy could come out overnight and we could start to uh, better utilise people's spare um, bedrooms and spare granny flats and things like that just because the tax settings that we've got in Australia don't really make that um, attractive. I guess that the empty homes is an interesting conversation. I mean, a lot of investors go, well, you know, I could rent this thing out. It's pretty run down. But, you know, the hassle of renting it to get, you know, $300 a week and then I have to pay tax on that and then I have to manage it, I might as well just leave it empty, right? And I think there should be some type of targeting on investors who aren't renting out their properties um, and there should be some type of vacancy tax or, you know, and I think that's happening in Victoria, I'm pretty sure. It's I think there's a, you know, a, a real understanding of, you know, properties that are underutilised that aren't people who aren't living in, Um and even if you're living overseas, like um, should you protect in the place that's just vacant, you know, should there be some type of extra tax or something? I, I do think it's a conversation to free up some of our housing stock that's not, that people aren't living in because there's a homelessness problem, there's a rental affordability crisis, um, and this is all feeding into a house price crisis, to be honest. Um, a good friend of ours up on the beaches, um, you know, caught up with them on the weekend, you know, they're renting a house up here and, you know, they, they had plans to stay there for many years. The investor, you know, the landlord told them to stay there for years and, you know, they've been given notice. Um, you know, and it's extremely stressful for them. They've got two young kids like us and trying to find another house, et cetera. So uh, I know that's just one story, but it's, it's you know, these problems are, are widespread. So, um, yeah, I think that the empty homes is a good idea, Pete. But Scott was more referring to people with empty bedrooms and empty granny flats. Maybe, maybe give us a, a taste of what he said. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? If you're if you're somebody who owns um, a home, uh, I think uh, I don't think it might be talking about it because we discussed it on a podcast. Uh, Cameron Kusher, uh, I remember him saying uh, on social media a few years ago, um, he's at the REA Group, um, senior analyst there, and he was saying We've got all these spare bedrooms for when people visit from overseas or friends and family and so on. But he said for half the time we just don't use them, and I think that's a very common story now. Um, at various points in your journey, I know my wife had borders uh, in her early years of home ownership to help her afford the mortgage, which always has its pros and cons. And when you're younger, you're sort of happy to go with that. Then it's harder as you have kids. I think, um, you know, so what um, Scott's uh, suggestion was here is that maybe the government should consider, say, a three-year moratorium 
on rental income that's earned from allowing people to use a spare bedroom. Um, I think one of the things that really puts people off from doing this is that it, it starts to get messy from a tax point of view. So the principal place of residence, of course, is capital gains tax free when you come to sell. But if you start renting out bedrooms and, you know, then people start thinking, oh, hang on, what, what about the impact on my pension? What about when I come to sell the property? Is this going to create CGT issues? Um, and I think his point here is a, is a very valid one. Well, if the government was to say, look, uh, we're in a rental crisis, we're getting more people going to share housing anyway because of uh, the lack of available rentals, well, why not say to people, um, you know, we, if you make a bedroom available, um, there won't be any impact on your capital gains tax-free status of your home. Um, now, there are some other, you know, potential you know, risks here in terms of, you know, uh, how does it all work um, from a legislation point of view? But it's certainly an idea that could certainly usher in, uh, well, millions of bedrooms. And as you said, quickly, it could, it's something that could be implemented pretty pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense to me. What do you think? Yeah, and I think the um, even just Airbnb it right. If someone goes away for um, we were to Fiji, as most people probably know on this podcast, you know, it's not incentive for us to put it on Airbnb. First, we've got to pay Airbnb. Then we've got the hassle of, uh, you know, managing that and, you know, kidding our place out, et cetera. But ultimately, if we, any, we make any money on that Airbnb, then I've got to pay, you know, tax on that, right? And then uh, I've got to potentially affect my CGT, the capital gains on the property, and I've got to do a calculation there. It's just all too complex. But if that money was tax-free, um, and maybe you said to people, look, you know, if you and this is where I think the, the government would have to take a bit of a hit here. They potentially couldn't say it's only for new people, then existing people who are doing it um, would say, hang on a sec, I'm not benefiting from this new policy. So they'd have to take a hit to their bottom line in terms of people who are Airbnb in their house now when they go away would probably benefit from this and they probably were still going to Airbnb their house under the old rules and would have paid tax. And so, but, you know, maybe it's you can Airbnb your house up to 90 days a year and you don't, uh, and as long as you're living in it, then, um, you know, you don't have to pay tax on that. So that would just create a lot of people with short-term accommodation in between. You know, just talk about that friend there. If they, they can't get a rental property by January, maybe they need to use an Airbnb for two or three months till they find a rental. But if there's not enough Airbnbs on the market. So I think there's a short-term letting benefit for some people, but then also a lot of people have got granny flats, you know, self-contained sort of rooms at the back of their place. Um and would happily rent that out to someone, you know, on a weekly basis, but just know that the tax just doesn't make that um, make sense. So I think the key thing to his, the what makes these ideas so well is the moratorium, right? If, you know, and if we say for three years, not one year, you know, three years are decent, you know, if you just do it for one year, it's a lot of hassle for one year. But if you set it for three or five, three to five years, I think it's a really good idea. And um, hats off for Scott. I mean, Scott's got a big voice runs a big company um and so hopefully that does get picked up by government and um yeah it's really considered as he pointed out i think if the landlord was a pensioner then the extra income under the current rules anyway could be could actually adversely affect your pension formula then your, your pension entitlement so that could be messy but I, I guess what he's saying in the article is this is a bit like um in world war Two when people had to come up with a you know on a war footing right we're in a, a crisis here and instead of waiting for three or four years for the next construction cycle to come round, why not look at doing something today a bit like a war effort um i think he says in the article a bit like you know melting the jewelry to build armaments well you know this is something that could be done today and done quickly 
um, instead of waiting you know, years. Because if you look at the apartment cycle, uh, 2024, yes, there's some supply. 2025 looks like an absolute mess, just nothing coming on. So I guess under the, the current trajectory, we're heading for a rolling rental crisis that's actually going to go on for two or three years. Uh, you know, there'll be ups and downs with the seasonality. Uh, I saw last month the... the um, Number of arrivals into Australia, 1.75 million. Departures, 1.5. I mean, that's a shitload of people mm. extra. And I, there's a seasonal impact there, of course, with international students and people coming back from holiday. Um, but instead of allowing this just to run and run, I guess um, it's a, a quick fix solution that the government could do with a stroke of a pen. And I think there's a demand for it. So, it's, you know, there's obviously a demand on the uh, renter side, rental crisis, but I think there's also a demand from the owner of the property or that because you think about it mortgage rates are as high as they've been they're higher than they expected they've got mortgages they've got to pay um and so if that means staying in your home renting out a room or two you'd absolutely consider that right and that's going to make me they can go directly to paying for their mortgages and would support the housing market which you know there's a whole story there but you know i mean it does protect um people who have gone and you know bought uh, bought properties right um, and so I reckon there's an argument to this, and so Scott, I hope um, hope this helps in any way to uh, get you a bit more voice behind it because we think it's a good idea. Beautiful. So let's crack on with the second story, Chris. Um, so I guess this is something which has been uh, bubbling along in the background for a little while. So China's second largest developer, Evergrande, is formally now. I guess, uh, collapsed. So we previously saw that um, the company had reported or the group had reported $81 billion of losses over two years as the Chinese real estate market uh, was sinking. I think this is something that probably for, gosh, at least the past decade, people have been saying, well, look, China is this kind of crazy bubble economy. There's uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of debts and um, there was uh, articles gosh, uh, over a decade ago, about 60, 60 odd million empty units. But it, I guess, so. Uh, you know, this has gone on and on for so long that people have kind of got a bit complacent about it. And they've sort of taken the view, well, 60 million empty units um, or apartments, and that just seems to be a permanent state of affairs. And that's the way they do things in China, build it, and they will come. Well, just over the past year, well, things are starting to send a few shudders through the, the world's uh, second biggest economy. Uh, so the China property sector, which I guess some would say is the second largest asset class in the world. You've got you know the US stock market, then you've got China, you know, China's property sector. Well, there's real turmoil there. The developers are failing to finish housing projects. Um, there's uh, people have, have gone on mortgage strike and there's protests and there's uh, some huge developments there that have completely stalled. Now, Evergrande had um, $300 billion worth of liabilities and the, the government was um, it was tightening, uh, I guess, the, the scrutiny on the sector. And, and now it's, it's basically, well, this shit's really hit the fan, essentially, and uh, the, the group has uh, collapsed and has filed for a Chapter 15 bankruptcy in New York. Now, I guess, Chris, the, the immediate thing I always think when a major real estate developer would go down like this is what happens next in terms of uh, not just the developments that are, are failing, but what about contagion? Because, you know, you've got other um, highly indebted developers like Country Garden and others. Uh, and I guess financial markets have sort of priced in a bit, but um, 
what do you think? There's potentially some knock-on impacts here and including for Australia. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little bit like the taste of 2008, these things. Um, that still feels quite fresh in a lot of people's minds, right? And when the banking uh, market freezes up because there's a worry on who owns this debt, who's got this Evergrande debt, right? I think it's, I've only done a little bit of research on this, but maybe it's $20, $30 billion of you know foreign debt or something, Pete. I'm not exactly sure, but you know, what bank's got that? Who's holding the cards, right? And you know, and I guess that's what happened in 2008. No, no one really wanted to um, lend to each other in the banking crisis, and you know that's just the worry here. I mean, you could see a. I, I was just reading the notes here. I mean, in 2018, uh, Evergrande was the largest, most valuable real estate company in the world, right? Um, and they were doing all sorts of things. They were going into automotive, into sport, health, entertainment, um, finance. Um, so, you know, they were printing money basically um, all the way up to sort of 2020 and it's just all blown up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it sounds like they were, they were targeting more the middle to upper end of the Chinese, um, you know, apartment market. So, yeah, it's, it's I guess in Australia, we took with an episode a few weeks ago, I think it was, Pete, where we talked about Chinese developers all pulling out of Australia. What does that mean for our resource sector? Um, if the Chinese economy doesn't need our steel and, um, and our coal, et cetera. How does that affect things? Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot to play here, but I think the, the real worry in my mind is, you know, does it mean that banks start to get worried about each other and say, who's who's holding the cards here? Who's going to have a big loss? And do I really want to um, lend money to them interchangeably between the banks? And so, yeah, what's your take on the, the real risk here, Pete? I think that was the thing, wasn't it? When the announcement came out, you immediately start thinking, who, who are the bank holders here? Who's... Mm. Uh, I saw the, um, uh, well, I guess two or two or three years ago, there's a lot of talk about whether a Tether potentially had a lot of Chinese commercial paper and the Bitcoin price immediately dropped uh, 10%, I think partly as well because Elon Musk, uh, the SpaceX was selling their Bitcoin or had sold their Bitcoin. Uh, I think, yes, yeah, so that's the first question. Who's who's holding the bag here? And is there any sort of contagion risk? I think, as you said, we can pretty much forget Chinese real estate developers being active in Australia, the the sector domestically in China is so uh, is so messy that uh, there won't be much development happening over here. I think there's only one sort of major development left now, which is uh, uh, Central Barangaroo. Uh, uh, practically all other Chinese development is gone. Um, I suppose coming the other way, um, over the years we've often seen people. Uh, getting money out of China, putting it into Australia. So mm. uh, there's certainly Jawai and others have been talking about um, Chinese investors getting active again after a, a sort of a period there where nothing was happening during COVID. Um, I think the, the, the other thing, yes, commodity prices like iron ore would come under pressure potentially if there's not the same demand for our commodities. But I guess that that's the thing. If China genuinely goes into a recession, uh, you know, does that mean deflation? Does it actually pull down the Australian economy too? I think if you, as you rightly pointed out, 2009-10, as China stimulated like crazy, I mean, we sort of coattailed our way out of recession on that basis. And I suppose those are the big questions. Will China really collapse or suffer? And if so, what kind of stimulus will the government uh, pump in? Because, of course, the Chinese uh, government does have trillions of dollars that could potentially be pumped in. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's one of those things. Um, watch it closely, but don't panic at this stage. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, uh, 
Yeah, watch this space, but I, I mean, I think it's not going to be a big contagion effect like it was in, you know, a credit crisis. But at the start of the credit crisis, people didn't think that it would end up with Lehman Brothers going under, right? So, um, yeah, let's let's keep tracking this story. It's like the, old, uh, like the old domino meme where somebody uh, knocks over the first domino, which is something seemingly insignificant, and then it parlays onto the next biggest domino, and by the end... Uh, yeah. Um, everything's falling to pieces. So, yeah, definitely. I mean, we've been talking about China and the bubble economy and debts and empty units for so long that it's almost like, yeah, well, you know, it is what mm. it is. But, you know, it's not like the risk has gone away. It just hasn't uh, hasn't fallen to pieces just yet. So definitely watch this space. Um, and uh, finally, for this week, Chris, um, so uh, Brisbane has become the house price leader. Macro Business uh, reported on this one. Um, they seem a bit more bullish on Brisbane these days. Uh, so um, over the past quarter, um, Brisbane prices are up uh, just over 4%, um, which is actually uh, more than Sydney. So Brisbane, 4.13% on CoreLogic's index, Sydney up 4.11%. I think uh, it's pretty interesting, isn't it, Chris? Uh, Sydney's prices from the lows are now up more than 8%, I think. Um, uh, PropTrack doesn't have uh, Sydney prices well, they're barely down from the peaks. They're probably 1% below all-time highs. And uh, definitely a change of um, tenor in the commentary from where we were sort of six or nine months ago. And obviously, with the usual caveat, that some property types and locations are, have done a lot better than others. Yeah, I think it's a real... Um, watching the supply and the listings over the next six months in Sydney, or even over the next three months, to be honest, up to the end of November. And if this positive news potentially continues right we're not saying that you know, this is going to happen but let's say the rba doesn't increase much at all right and you know all of a sudden the you know there's talk of rates have hit the peak then all of a sudden the only thing to talk about after that is when a rates cuts coming um because that's the next thing right if we if we, and and when are they coming and how big are those rate cuts going to be and if the, if the market gets a little bit overconfident the rate cuts are guaranteed and they're coming and they're going to be significant at some time in 2024, would you wait for the rate cuts to then potentially look to purchase or do you want to get ahead of the game and look to buy before the rate cuts come? Now, I would say buyers at the moment, uh, and myself included, um, don't want to bank on rate cuts significantly anytime soon, right? There's still that fear of, you know, is inflation going to stick around? You know, is interest rates going to potentially have to go a bit higher? And um, I don't think the, the inflation genie is back in the bottle, but it's looking like that's heading in the right direction, right? So my worry is that if the commentary starts to flip, the mainstream media, the domains, the real estates, the news.com that they use, the, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, um, et cetera, right? If this starts the Channel 9 news, like it can very easily flip, Um and that's what the mass market usually follows, to be honest. Uh, and if they start saying, oh, CBA is expecting 1.5% um, rate cuts next year and, you know, that's going to increase borrowing capacities 15% and APRA is now kind of step in and um, if that's what the market believes, that'll get factored into prices before it happens. Um, and my worry is that, you know, the buyers are going to enter when there's very little listings on the market. When 2019, when we went into Sydney house prices were down 15%, um, and there was quite a lot of people still selling in 2018, right? And if you compare the number of listings on the market in 2018 in sort of the aspirational parts of our capital cities markets, much higher number of properties were on the market in suburbs 
um, on a suburb by suburb level than what's on the market in 2023, right? And so that the market bounced back really quickly then when, you know, Labor lost the election, um, rate cuts and borrowing capacity went up. Um, my worry is if there's talk of rate cuts and borrowing capacities going up and it's a much smaller number of properties on the market, does that quickly get factored into prices? Do we create almost like a little mini boom scenario? And I'm just trying, trying to talk the market up, but that's what I think is sort of happening right now. I think the buyers are still there. Like we've got an enormous pre-approval list. We've got lots of clients that want to upgrade um, and a lot of first-home buyers. Investors are, are definitely a lot more um, restricted because of borrowing capacity. But, yeah, uh, it doesn't surprise me. I think Brisbane's going to start to piggyback off Sydney. Um, I do think more and more people are going to get forced out of Sydney pretty quick. Same in Melbourne. Um, and Brisbane's just an amazing lifestyle alternative. I think that's what's really going to drive Brisbane consistently longer term is that interstate migration um, and the flexible remote work, hybrid work, um, head offices opening up there because um, you know they can get workers easier and it's more affordable for workers. Um, I think that's what's driving the, the Brisbane story. What, what do you What do you think, Pete? Well, here's a quote from the Macro Business article. So Leith Van Onselen, um, g'day Leith if you're uh, tuning in. Uh, he's got me blocked on social media, so I must have said something stupid years ago. Uh, I'm down in Melbourne in a few weeks, Leith, if you want to grab a beer. But uh, this is a quote from the article. Uh, big fan of your work, by the way. Um, so there is a good reason to believe Brisbane will outperform its capital city rivals over the medium to longer term. According to Queensland's draft regional plan, which was published last month, an additional 2.2 million people will call southeast Queensland home by 2046, raising the region's population to 6 million from 3.8 million now. So that's, I mean, it's, it's basically the fastest population growth in the country. By 2046, about half a million people are predicted to relocate to the Brisbane City Council area alone, as you said, Chris, raising the population there to 1.7 million. Now, I think the, the interesting thing here is that Leith likes to back up his um, assertions with some statistics and graphs and so on. Um, now, he's one of the graphs he's run here, which stood out to me as interesting, Brisbane house prices versus Sydney, the long run ratio of prices is about 62.5%, um, call it about two thirds. Um, so Brisbane's always been cheaper uh, than Sydney. The current ratio, though, is only about, uh, well, it's, Brisbane is 54% of the typical house price in Sydney. So that does uh, tend, when you get down to those kind of levels, to see people saying, well, hang on, if it's costing me half as much uh, to move to another city, then you'll get that interstate migration happening from New South Wales to Queensland. So, and we have seen some of that over the past two or three years. So, yeah, so it's an interesting concept. Often, Chris, so we have clients say to us, well, you know, I've got a budget of whatever it may be. I've got a million bucks to invest. You know, should I invest in Perth or Brisbane or do I look at somewhere else like Newcastle, Adelaide? Um, how do you go about in that situation, Chris, weighing up the various options? I, I think the thing that we often like about Brisbane is the potential to buy a house on a good block of land rather than being forced into buying a unit potentially in one of the more expensive markets. Yeah, I mean, so really, uh, I mean, it comes down to borrowing capacity. What sort of their other assets? Um, you know, what's their future plans with their home, etc. And so, it's not just quickly right. Let's go straight into and and a cookie cutter, cutter approach. Like all our clients are, are doing different things, which is, you know, different to a lot of people in the the broking world or the property space. You know, it's very 
uh, especially when you're growing a business, is just to funnel everyone down a particular advice. I find this with lots of property spruikers who are buying quantity. They, no matter what someone's budget is, they just keep on buying in this regional location because that's where they're buying with all their other clients. And you know, if they can afford three, then they buy three of them in three different locations um, that they're buying. So um, yeah, ultimately though, if you look at the um, fundamentals when you're looking at an investment and what's the right purchase price. So if you look at Melbourne. Um, I'm very apprehensive looking at the apartment in Melbourne personally in, in Melbourne. I just think that there's a, a constant supply that's going to come on. Very flat city, very relaxed planning controls in my mind. Um, and they'll just keep building apartments and townhouses for fun, really. I think it's just it's going to um, never be a shortage of those. Um, but the houses, right, in Melbourne, absolutely there's um, liquidity problem and a supply problem, right? And so uh, the problem is, you know, if you talk to you look at a lot of where the high-income families in Melbourne want to live, your purchase price in these suburbs, um, and even potentially where they want to live longer term, like you're still looking well over a million, probably closer to 1.5 um, and to get into a decent block of land that a you know a high-income family would would want to look live in. So it's a high purchase price. But the problem with Melbourne, very low, low rents. Because of this, you know, apartments, because of um, what they've been building, you know, people just aren't forced to pay a lot of money in rent. There's options, um, especially because a lot of renters are singles, couples, um, not so much the family market. And um, they're able to, you know, well, if I, you want to charge me $800 for the house, um, I can rent an apartment for 600 I might as well just do that and save a bit of money, right? And I can get a rent, rent an apartment in an area I want to live because there's lots of them in the city or in, in South Yarra, et cetera. So that's Melbourne. I mean, Sydney, I think, is probably getting, you know, 1.5 to 2, you know, and, you know, the yields are a little bit better in Sydney probably. You know, there's a little bit of a problem with renting in Sydney for families and they're forced to pay more money for rent in houses, I would say. But a lot of investors haven't got those budgets, right? Um, and so I would say in Brisbane, though, you, you, you know, it does make more sense for especially under higher interest rates for investors because the rents are higher there. Um, and um, potentially you can enter at a lower purchase price. You know, you could argue on this, Pete, as well. But to get into a, a quintessential, you know, family market, a good block of land, you know, a good suburb where high-income families and people want to, if people are leaving Sydney, Melbourne, and they're moving to Brisbane, they'd want to live in these suburbs, right, um, because they offer everything they would want to have in their, in Melbourne or Sydney, you know, like inner city life, access to cafes and great schools and easy to get to the city. They can't afford that in Sydney, Melbourne, but they can afford it in Brisbane. So that encourages them to potentially make the move. And so I think Brisbane's definitely heading to the top of the list again for a lot of investors because of the yield, because of the lower purchase price, because borrowing capacities are really tight, um, and because they can get, you know, AAA assets, which is a housing market in, in you know, scarce locations that high-income families want. So that's a bit of a, a bit to it. We, we're definitely more eastern border um, East Coast focused, we would say that, you know, we think that those three markets have got great, um, you know, diversity in income and professions and, um, you know, are already pressure cooker cities um, and so uh, and got strong population growth. And we think that, you know, if uh, employers, if they were going to open up a head office outside Sydney, Melbourne, I think Brisbane's the next spot, right? Um, similar time zone um, besides daylight savings, catch up there, Um Queensland, but that's that's where we focus. That's a long answer to the question, Pete, but it's a big question. We can't do the daylight saving because uh, it will confuse the cows and fade the curtains. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a well, it's an exact conversation I had this week. Actually, chatting to uh, 
a client, uh, somebody inquired, and they, they were looking at Melbourne, uh, looking around places like Brunswick. Uh, but when they sort of looked into it, the rental yield was like two, you know, two and a half or something. Very difficult if you're borrowing at 6% to uh, to make all that work. Now, uh, just to wrap up on Leith's article, Brisbane housing relatively affordable compared to its larger East Coast cousins, meaning that in the long run, Brisbane house prices should grow faster. Also, the Olympics in 2032 will spur infrastructure investment and strengthen Brisbane's position as a global city, increasing international buyer interest. So his view is uh, the long-term ingredients are in place for Brisbane house prices to outperform the unit market has been something a bit different over the years. So I think that's it for this week, Chris. So uh, Scott Keck's article worth a read on LinkedIn on how the government might look to use spare bedrooms, uh, whether or not that actually happens is another question. Um, secondly, yes, the Chinese uh, debacle is definitely one to put on the watch list. I think uh, Evergrande is an enormous group and that's uh, it's been teetering for some time. That's, that's now... Uh, toppled and we're just interested to see if there's any contagion risk there and um, interesting piece from uh, Leith Van Onselen uh, macro business on Brisbane being the house price leader among the capital cities now I think you're right Chris I think um, Western Australia and Perth um, certainly over the past 20 years has been the most cyclical market and somewhat tied to the fortunes of commodities and it's it's so hard to predict this stuff you know it could be it could be an amazing performer or it might not. It's very hard to predict. Uh, with the fortunes tied so closely to the commodity cycle, um, so who really knows? But uh, yeah, I do love the uh, the city over there in Perth. Uh, that having been said, um, so well, thanks so much everyone for tuning in. Don't forget, as always, send us your questions. We love to cover your questions. Chris will have to do another Q and A soon. Uh, run through a few of the uh, the questions that we get sent in. Uh, you can catch me at Pete Wardian Blogspot, my daily blog, or at Pete Wardian on Twitter if you haven't got me blocked. And uh, Chris, where can people go if they want to have a chat to you at Blusk? Well, I'm actually going to a few uh, at the Brisbane Roadshow. So I saw you there. Um, it was good to meet you because um, this will be on after. But uh, yeah, have a look in the show notes. We've got a link to the business. We'd absolutely have a, love to have a chat if you're reconsidering what you're doing on the finance or property decisions. So um, yeah, happy Sunday to all our listeners. And, and, and thanks for joining us on this journey. We're loving it. We're um, probably three, four months into it. And um I think we've over 20,000 people listen to um, the episode. So we're, we uh, we thank every single one of you. Yeah, 23,000 over the past month. It's our best to date. So uh, spread the joy and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Cheers, Chris. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for tuning in to the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. 
After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.